is Co-Discovery. Hello, welcome to this episode of Core Discovery with me, Abigail Acton. Today, we're considering animal welfare and sentience. Research conducted back in 1995 established that a pigeon can tell a Picasso from a Monet. And by 2017, we knew that sheep can recognize faces from photographs. Surprised? So what else don't we know about the way in which animals experience the world around them? Is our ignorance leading us to act in ways we wouldn't if we did know more? The animals that feed us, clothe us, entertain us, what is the nature of their intelligence and how sentient are they? Today we're asking, do we focus too much on spoken language and manual dexterity as markers of intelligence? If something doesn't have opposable thumbs and can't speak, does it mean that it isn't sentient? What does sentience mean? And does it exist where we might not expect to find it? If we're more aware of the levels of awareness in the animals around us, what are we doing about our relationship with them? What developments are coming down the line to support animal welfare on farms, for example? Good job we have three guests from EU-supported Horizon 2020 projects to walk us through the maze. Jonathan Birch is an associate professor at the London School of Economics Centre for Philosophy of Natural and Social Science. In 2021, the review he led into the sentience of invertebrate animals resulted into the amendment of the UK government's animal welfare bill to include octopuses, crabs and lobsters. Welcome, Jonathan. Hello. Associate Professor at the University of Leuven's Animal and Human Health Engineering Unit, Thomas Norton leads research on sustainable precision livestock farming, covering animal health, welfare and productivity. Hi, Thomas. Hello, Abigail. Nicola Clayton is a Fellow of the Royal Society and Professor of Comparative Cognition in the Department of Psychology at the University of Cambridge. She is particularly interested in the processes of thinking with and without words, comparing the cognitive capacities of corvids, cephalopods and children. Welcome, Nikki. Hello. Jonathan, I'm going to start with you. You were involved with the Ascent Project, which aimed to develop a richer picture of the links between sentience, welfare, and the ethical status of animals. The project set out to give an account of the basic functional capacities involved in sentience. Can you explain what sentience means and what capacities in what contexts could be considered as indicating sentience? Well, sentience is just a fancy way of talking about feeling. It's about the subjective feelings of animals, experiences with a positive or negative quality. We can think of many examples of feelings from our own lives, like pain, pleasure, anxiety, joy, contentment, boredom, frustration. And from thinking about those particular feelings, we can abstract this broader idea of the capacity to have feelings, sentience. Now, it may well be that lots of other animals don't have the same feelings we have, but nonetheless, they may well be having subjective feelings. And we need methods for studying that scientifically. And my Foundations of Animal Sentience project is about trying to develop better methods for doing that. Right. Can I ask you then, how can we measure it? So, for example, we know our dogs rejoice in a well-thrown stick and a purring cat, we assume, is a contented cat. Are these examples of subjective awareness? And how do we establish the capacity of subjective awareness in animals? I think we have to start by recognizing that this is a very, very difficult problem. It's what philosophers sometimes call the problem of other minds. And I think we, to some extent, need to get beyond the idea that it's just obvious what an animal is feeling. When we're interacting with our own pets, we often think it's obvious. We often think we know what a dog or a cat is feeling. But in fact, I think this is something we can't just observe and that we have to settle carefully with scientific evidence. My project's been particularly interested in invertebrate animals like octopuses, 
where people don't have that same reaction. So unlike with dogs and cats, they don't just look at an octopus and think, oh, of course I know what it's feeling. In fact, the inscrutability is very, very clear when it comes to octopuses. And I think that gets us thinking in the right way because we immediately start thinking we need scientific evidence to actually help us make some progress on these questions and can't always rely on what we intuitively think. Okay, and when we talk about scientific progress, then, I mean, what sort of experiments are conducted to quantify or assess sentience? How can we actually get that data? It's, again, very difficult. And there's no single line of evidence that is a smoking gun and that immediately tells you that an animal is sentient and that tells you what it's feeling. What we've got to do is develop multiple different lines of evidence that is partly about looking at the brain and brain mechanisms partly about looking at behavior and cognitive abilities. And when it comes to invertebrates, behavior and cognitive abilities have this special significance because their brains are completely differently organized from our own. So researchers around the world have been doing really interesting work lately, exploring sentience in octopuses and crabs and lobsters using experimental designs that were previously used in mammals. And my own project has a strand that is about trying to develop new experimental setups for investigating sentience or the possibility of it in bees. And tell us more about that. I mean, how, what, how is that set up? What sort of experiments are you doing for that or your researchers? So I can give one um, example of an experiment that one of my postdocs, Andrew Crump, worked on and that was recently published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, PNAS. It's an experiment that draws inspiration from a, a kind of experiment that is used to assess pain in rats, where the thought is that one of the functions of experiences like pleasure and pain is to provide a common currency for decision making. They help you weigh up how bad something is. So, for example, if you're out running and you get a tiny little niggling pain in the tip of your toe, you might just think I can run through that that's really tiny. But if it's a very severe pain of a broken leg or something like that, you immediately realize you can't run through it and you have to stop and nurse the injury. So pleasure and pain help us make flexible decisions. And in rats, this was explored with an experiment where the rats had to go through a cold tunnel to access a sweet reward at the end. And the question was, will they trade off the sweetness of the reward they can access against the temperature they have to withstand to get it. And the fact that they do this trade-off tells you something about how bad the cold is from their point of view versus how good the, the sweetness is of the reward at the end. And so this, this recent experiment was doing a very similar thing, but with bees, where again, we vary the sweetness of the sugar solution that the bees can access at different platforms. And we also vary the temperature of those feeding platforms that the bee has to stand on. So we're looking for temperature ranges that are mildly aversive to the bee. We're not trying to seriously injure the bee, but temperatures of around 40 degrees that are experienced as aversive. And then the question is, will the bee trade off the sweetness of the reward it can access against the discomfort of having to withstand a certain temperature to get it? And the pattern of results for the bees looks broadly similar to the pattern for rats, that they do indeed make this trade-off. So they're making these flexible decisions in a common currency. And for us, that's one line of evidence. It's not uh, conclusive evidence that they're feeling discomfort when they stand on those heat pads. But it is suggestive of you know, centralized, integrative processing of that information. And we think that raises the probability of them 
experiencing feelings when they're making these decisions. And it's very interesting that, as you say, they register these feelings, or at least that the reactions mimic from bee to, to rat, not the result, but the reaction is the same, the motivation is the same as well. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, excellent. What do you hope the impact of, of this research could have in the future, and how are your findings feeding into policymaking now? We've already been involved in a, in a substantial review of the evidence that is relevant to sentience in octopuses, crabs, and lobsters that led to us advising the UK government to recognise the sentience of these animals in law and take potential welfare impacts on them into account in future policymaking. So it was heartening, for me at least, to see policymakers in the UK taking that issue seriously at all, because I think the welfare of animals is often neglected and the welfare of invertebrates is often even more neglected. And so it's great to just see people discussing this issue. We wanted our report to start a wider conversation about this topic. And we think that conversation should be broad enough to include insects uh, as well. We think there's growing interest in insect farming, a lot of talk of insect farming and hype that this might be part of the answer of meeting the world's protein needs sustainably, but a total lack of uh, welfare guidelines, regulations, no one knows what humane slaughter is for an insect, for example, or what high welfare farming looks like. So we want to start a discussion of that issue as well and just broaden people's horizons, I think, when it comes to talking and thinking about animal welfare. It's true that if it's an animal that we're not used to being around and if it's an animal that really doesn't look anything like us, we tend to classify it as being something that probably doesn't have much in the way of feelings or isn't particularly sentient. So yeah, it's an interesting one. I like the argument or the concept that you put forward about the fact that the octopuses don't look like our dogs, puts us in unfamiliar territory and causes us to rethink mm. what our interpretation actually is. And that maybe we should come to looking at our dogs and our cats as, with a clean slate as well and rethinking that too. Yeah, very interesting. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Does anyone have any questions or observations to, to make to, to Jonathan? Yeah, Nikki. I was just going to say that I think one of the critical arguments here in this area of science and in my own is this whole idea of converging evidence to bear on a problem, that no single one experiment is going to prove a point. But actually, if all roads lead to Rome, then you've got to Rome. And I think that's exactly the approach that you're taking, Jonathan, in a lot of the work that you're doing. Like a jigsaw puzzle, really, I suppose. You're putting in pieces and overall, bit by bit, after the passage of a bit of time, a, a larger picture becomes apparent, I guess. Yes, Thomas. Yeah, I'd like to uh, ask a question because I think, particularly from the work we do, we learn more and more about the animal and their response and how they react in different situations. We get a bigger, a stronger understanding of their personality. But how far should we go with that? Because particularly when you talk about uh, farm animals, we see more and more that they are quite intelligent. But do we, should we, Jonathan, go into that territory where we try and demonstrate the intelligence of these animals? Is it a case that it harms uh, animal production? Or yeah, what is your perception of that? I think we shouldn't be afraid of knowledge in this area. I think we, we have to know. We have to try and understand the welfare needs of animals as best we can. We have to try not to overestimate their sentience and intelligence, but we have to try not to underestimate it either. 
And we have to be thinking about how we can give them suitably enriched environments that are properly enriched for their actual cognitive abilities. I think with octopuses, for example, it's incredibly hard to imagine how they could really be properly farmed with high welfare. And that's a concern because some companies are trying to set up octopus farming operations. I think in general, with all farm animals, we have to think about how we can give them good lives, how we can give them environments in which they can express their full range of cognitive abilities. Excellent. Thank you very, very much. Thomas, I'm going to turn to you, actually. Autoplay Pig, or to give your project its full title, Automatic Detection of Play Behaviour in Young Pigs as a Measure of Positive Effective States, was set up to meet the need for a more effective way to monitor farm animal welfare. So your project brought together advances in artificial intelligence with an interest in how playfulness in pigs indicates well-being. What caused you to think of applying AI deep learning to pig farming, Thomas? Well, thanks for the question, Abigail. Uh, to be honest, I've been reared in an agricultural family, come from an agricultural community. So for me, this is a kind of an interesting topic for a long time. I'm also an engineer, and I did my uh, PhD in a field called computational fluid dynamics, but I applied it to calf housing. So that's you can, you can see already the link uh, that I tried to set in it for a long time now. Um, and actually, to be honest, I think that farmers do a really good job when it comes, in general, to farming their animals. They are custodians of the land and the countryside, but also animal health and welfare. And a lot of them have a lot of respect for the animals they produce. And therefore, for me, it's important to help them to quantify this, actually, how well they are farming. And I'm talking about the good farmers, the people who respect their animals. And that is more and more challenging for them. Why? Because we can see that even though the number of farms are decreasing uh, on average throughout Europe, uh, the pig farms, for instance, have halved in the last 20 years, the number of animals have doubled per farm. So it's, it's very difficult for them to follow individual animals. And what we would like to do is bring them the tools to enable them to quantify health and welfare. Uh, Welfare is an important aspect that we're interested in, and that's what this project is about. It's not about quantifying the negative aspects of welfare, but indeed looking at the positive aspects. The playing, for instance, between young pigs, uh, you know, individual playing and also the interaction with enrichment. For us, this is a very interesting thing uh, that can indeed help us understand these animals and balance how, how welfare can be balanced on the farm. Okay, yeah. Super. And and I guess you were looking at pigs, the young pigs' playfulness as a, a metric to, to judge whether they're stress-free and healthy. That was, I suppose, the benefit of looking at that particular aspect of behavior? Yeah. And I think when you looked at the research, like there is some nice research coming out from Canada that shows that, yeah, if you, you know, enhance the environment and you promote playing activities, there can be a lot of production benefits later on as well. For instance, the robustness of the animal, the immunity can be strengthened um, because they become more flexible in their thinking and you can stress them a little bit more later on or at least they're more robust because you offer this uh, environment where they can interact and uh, play um, with each other. And actually, we want, our, our aim is to try and enable welfare scientists 
to do a better job in the future, to better design the environment and the enrichment conditions of the animals. Okay, so that's the goal and, and, and that's what you were looking at. Uh, can you tell me a little bit more about the technology behind it? So what tools did you actually use and what information did they capture? Okay, so our main uh, interest is the use of uh, computer vision tools. And there we look to visual response or behavioral responses of the animal. And in particular, for this case, we're looking to different types of play, locomotive play, social play, for instance. And we try to capture this information on an individual level. And that's that's really what, you know, at the moment, that's what artificial can, intelligence can enable us to do. We can look to these behaviors that could easily be confused by a person uh, with running, with walking. But now with these tools, we can actually classify them correctly as playing events. And then because you have a camera, you can remotely capture this data 24-7 in a perfect world. But of course, we have to develop the research and move towards there. It won't be overnight, but there's a lot of really interesting advantages that this technology can bring. I guess it also strips out any notion of subjectivity as well. Of course. Because I suppose if you have humans monitoring and trying to assess whether their pigs are content and so on, it some person's notion of what they're seeing might be different from someone else's or someone might just feel tired and miss something. Indeed. And uh, that's, you know, also that's the starting point of developing these algorithms because you really need good expertise in order to develop a good technique, uh, the the animal behavior science that goes into that needs to be very strong. Um, for instance, in this project, uh, Mona Larson, which was my postdoc at the time, she's now associate professor in Aarhus University. It took her a considerable amount of time to actually agree what is locomotive play? Uh, what are these different play events? Because indeed, we need consistency. And then when you have this level of consistency, you can develop the algorithms. But it just tells you your starting point needs to be very good at the beginning. And of course, after you've gone past that point, you can reapply. That's the idea, that we can reapply many different farms in the future. Yeah, it becomes replicable. Yeah. So how do you see the role of artificial intelligence and deep learning evolving in the analysis of animal welfare? Could it go beyond farms? You know, I think that we have a lot of things to do in the livestock production space, actually. I think you know, we, we should begin to look at the farming of animals as kind of collaboration between the animals and the farmer, not just uh, the farmer does actions and the animals are affected by these actions, but more like what are the needs of the animals? How do we respond to these needs as quickly as possible? There are some interesting examples coming in the literature. For instance, in Germany, they've done some work on call feeding of sows, where they call, in order to reduce the aggression between sows, they call the sows with a particular sound cue that's linked with an individual sow to feed at the feeder. Um, and then they reduce that the instance of this aggression between individual sows fighting to feed. And I think this is a step towards this collaborative way of working with animals. And artificial intelligence can really help us because we can get more information about these animals, build up kind of avatar of what, what, how we expect certain animals to behave in certain situations and use their intelligence, just like Jonathan said, to try and think with, uh, you know, use this to, to help them and to improve their welfare, their conditions, and also have a benefit for the farmer. That's a win-win, I see. 
There we go. Perfect. Thank you very much, Thomas. Does anyone have any questions or observations to make on Thomas's work? Yeah, Jonathan. Yes, thanks. I wanted to ask what you see as the role for human judgment in all this, because what you're describing reminds me a bit of the use of AI in medical imaging, where you no longer need a human reader to look at screening images from cancer screening, because AI can classify these images just as well. But when you ask patients, do they want that? A very strong message from these patients seems to be they still want some human involvement. They still want their image to pass the eyes of a human reader at some point because it's so important and there's more trust in the judgment of a human. I wonder if you think some of those points might carry over to the animal welfare case and whether there's still a really crucial role for human expertise in this area as well. I completely agree. I don't ever believe that we should take the expertise out of the hands of the farmer. He should always have some level of expertise and knowledge because in the end, He's running the farm and he has a lot of many different things to deal with. But the real benefit of this technology is not to run things auto automatically per se, but to give the farmer more information that he can make more informed or better informed decisions. Because he can't be amongst these animals 24-7. It's just not possible. Um, so it's really about yeah, giving that extra bit of information, giving support in terms of what decisions could be made in this kind of scenario and help him make the right decision. So I, I believe that there will always be the need of a caretaker, a farmer, to ensure the welfare of the, the, the animal. The, the animal system is too complex to just leave it in the hands of the computer. Nikki, you had something you wanted to say? Yeah, I just wanted to question the role of all cues. Obviously, when you were talking about the AI machine, the emphasis you were saying was visual. And you also mentioned acoustic cues. And I was thinking that, you know, for many farm animals, including pigs, olfaction is one of their major sensory worlds. And it's one that we as human beings are not so good at. And I wondered if there was any way of having the AI almost help us human beings, farmers and non-farmers who, you know, love animals like the, the three of us, be able to attend to cues that perhaps we're not naturally so good at and they are so good at. Yeah. Uh, so, Nikki, do you mean to offer the pigs some different types of enrichments uh, based on what they're actually doing it at a certain moment. Is that what you mean? Well, that could be one way of doing it. The other would be just finding out if there's something that we're missing about their communication system because we're not nearly as good at smell as them. So might it be that using AI devices alerts us to things that I was going to say we can't see, but I mean we can't smell as well as they can, but we can't perceive. So it could we use this as a tool to help us understand them better? Because there may be parts of what they're trying to communicate to other pigs and to us that we can't detect very well because of limits in our sensory and cognitive capacities. Indeed. Um, I think it's a very good point. The, the thing is, all of this leads against what is available in terms of sensing technology. We need to work more with um, yeah, people developing novel sensor systems. And 
give some kind of leads on what could be potential. Um, of course, this often takes a long time, and it takes a long time for sensors to be developed because there's a lot of steps in developing robust hardware. And that what that has meant is that there's, in terms of what we have available to us, uh, what we could apply on farms and in farming-like uh, environments are typically cameras, are typically uh, microphones, accelerometers, but the type of yeah, there's. A, I think there's a plethora of other potential signals that we should capture, and indeed we need to work harder with uh, with the uh, technology developers to do this. Um, yeah, there is a lot of unexplored territory. I think there. It's interesting that you mentioned that, Nikki, because I was just thinking something that Thomas told me earlier about the benefit of AI in this way is that it's non-invasive. And actually, Thomas, if it was possible to develop some sort of sensor that could pick up a chemical signature, for example, you would be able to read off stress maybe. Um, I mean, they must be communicating all sorts of things uh, via their senses of smell. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that would be really interesting. Very good point, Nikki. That's fascinating. Well, and that brings me to you, Nikki, directly. <laughs> Thank you, Thomas. Turning to Nikki now. CauseCog, your project, considered tool use as a way to gain a better understanding of causal cognition in corvids and humans. Nikki, why corvids and children? It's interesting that you were considering such completely different species in tandem. Well, when it comes to cognitive abilities, when it comes to thinking skills, the corvids, that's the members of the crow family that includes the jays, ravens, rooks and magpies, are feathered apes. They're extremely intelligent. And what's interesting about them is a bit like the octopus that Jonathan was mentioning at the beginning of our conversation today. They have very different brains from mammals. So bird brains are nucleated and mammalian brains are layered. Now, let me give you an example to make that clearer. Imagine you're eating a cake. A bird brain is like a fruit cake. It's full of little bits and pieces all arranged, higgledy-piggledy. A mammalian brain is like an Austrian chocolate cake, a sasha torta. It's got its six layers of stuff. So it immediately raises interesting questions about how very clever animals for example, corvids and human beings might be able to problem solve. And the interesting thing is not whether they're the same or whether they're different, but the complexity, the pattern of similarities and differences. Why children rather than adult human beings? Because of the problem of words. If you look in children and in animals such as crows or cephalopods or pigs, you transcend the problem of what we do about this thing that some can talk and use when read and write and others can't. Right, absolutely. So, th so yeah, there's that commonality and then at the same time a huge disparity that then that's the matrix or the, yeah, the interface between the two that's interesting. Uh-huh. And how did you assess cognitive ability and how did it differ between the Js, I believe you were using Js for your experiments, and the children involved? What was the experiment and how did you interpret it? Well, you know, there's many ways of looking at problem solving. And I just wanted to pick a simple one because that way you can manipulate the various different variables or factors involved and in that way try and get a better understanding of what they can and cannot do. 
So the task we used was based on an Aesop's fable, The Crow and the Pitcher. And in the original fable, there's a thirsty crow and it encounters a jug or a pitcher of water and it plops stones into the jug to raise the water level so it can drink. Now, I wouldn't dream of making my corvids thirsty. That would be a, an unpleasant thing to do. But you can tempt them in another way, a very simple way. All members of the corvid family that I have had the pleasure to work with love worms, particularly waxworms. Strictly speaking, they're wax moth larvae. I am a biologist by training. And they love these. They're the Belgian truffles of the Corvid world. So you simply plop a worm that floats on the top of the water, but the water level is too low for the bird to be able to get the worm. And then you give it some objects that it can plop into the tube and ask whether it understands that you need to plop items that sink into a tube containing water. And actually, if the tube contains air or a solid like sand, it's pointless. And the jays rapidly do this, and they put ones that sink in rather than ones that float. And the interesting thing was we also tested children. And I was thinking children would be really good at this because most children have had baths with, you know, sponges that float and bar soap that sinks but the children didn't spontaneously solve the problem until they were eight years old in a series of experiments funded by Corscog, we got to the bottom of the problem it turns out that children don't rely on simple trial and error learning to know what to do next it's only when they develop an understanding of functionality that they spontaneously put the heavy ones into the water to raise the level. Okay, that's fascinating. And that's despite the motivation. So clearly, no matter what the motivation, obviously it wasn't wax firms for the kids, whatever the motivation was for the kids, however desirable the motivation, they couldn't make that leap until the age of eight. No, it wasn't a question of concentration because they weren't very interested in what you were offering. You raise a lovely point. Um, the motivation for the children was a little sticker. We had to have something that floats, otherwise the whole thing doesn't work. And the sticker was a tiny little sticker that they could then exchange for a big sticker that said Clayton's Comparative Corvid Cognition Lab at the top. And at the bottom, it said, I'm as clever as a crow. <laughs> now, you might wonder at this point, why didn't we use stickers for the Jays? The problem with using stickers for the Jays is they fly off and catch them. And then I can't get them back. That's wonderful. That's excellent because the stickers in themselves become a prize that they escape with. Yes, excellent. Completely. Brilliant animals. Absolutely wonderful. Thank you. Um, I'm thinking about cognition here. I'm thinking about sentience. And I'm wondering whether there was any work that you've done on delayed gratification and impulse control, because that's got to overlap with these, these concepts. Oh, that's a lovely example. Yes, we have. We've done self-control both with the Jays and with cuttlefish, the cephalopods, the cousins of the octopus Jonathan was talking about. So there's something called the marshmallow test, and it's been done a lot with children. It's got various other names like the Smarties test. But basically, the principle is this. You can have one yummy item right now, or if you wait a little while, 
you can have several yummy items. But in order to get several yummy items, you can't take one yummy item right now. So, you know, there might be one versus five or one versus three. You have to not, you have to resist, you have to turn around, you probably forget, whatever it is that helps you resist the temptation in order to get them later. And both the cuttlefish and the jays are actually surprisingly good at those tasks. We were especially surprised at the cuttlefish. You see, with the jays, they hide food for a living. So I thought they'd be quite good at it. Because if you think about what you have to do when you cash hide food for a living, is you have to ignore what you want right now and put your emphasis on what you will want later. So the fact that the jays were brilliant at this didn't really surprise me. I thought that's well, probably related to the fact that they're so good at hiding food. But the cuttlefish don't hide food. They might hide themselves. It's called deceptive dynamic camouflage. But they don't normally, you know, hide food. But they have no problem doing this work either. Oh, that's fantastic. That's fascinating, isn't it? So, yes, that's what I sort of kicked off this whole program with the notion of being surprised. Um, yes, we never, yeah, we never really have a true handle on it. Okay, um, great, thank you. Oh, I just want to ask you something else as well. Um, we've been talking about causal cognition and the way it reveals about how an animal perceives the world, but the ability to recognize something or be surprised by something, presumably they're indicators as well with regards to how an animal perceives the world around it. So to trigger those responses in COVIDs, I believe that you're also interested in how humans and jays interpret or react to magic tricks. Uh, what hypothesis were you testing there and, and how? So the idea behind magic effects is that what a magician does to his or her audience is to violate an expectation. So in terms of causal understanding, the idea is that you have some understanding of it's in this hand or it's in that hand. And then all of a sudden the magician's done something unbeknown to you, which leads to a violation of the expectation. In other words, you're surprised because it's not where you thought it would be. And we thought that this would be a very interesting technique to look at in animals as well as people, because a lot of the effects don't rely on words. You know, when a magician is doing a performing magic to his human audience or her human audience, they may well use words to create a story around the effect. But the surprise is what you see and what you haven't seen. So we thought we could have a go at seeing if we could look at how jays respond to magic effects and found that jays are surprised by some magic effects and not others. Essentially, if the magician is using their hands to block your view in something called a fast pass, for example, where a hand in a way behaves like a wing, it just obscures your view, the jays are fooled. They have the same expectations as we do the magician has violated that expectation and the jays are surprised their crest goes up and they start looking really avidly um, but it's very clear that it's surprised if you use other effects with hands that require you to use your fingers and thumbs in the way we do because we have opposable thumbs so we can pinch for example the jays are not surprised because they don't have an expectation about how fingers and thumbs work. We therefore, naturally, 
being zoologists come psychologists, looked at monkeys because you have various different kinds of monkeys that have different fingers and thumbs. Marmosets have a thumb that works like a finger. So in a way, they have five fingers rather than four fingers and a thumb. They behave like the jays, whereas capuchin monkeys that have opposable thumbs behaved like human beings. So if you yourself have an opposable thumb, you're surprised by it. If you don't, you're not. So in a way, what we, we can come away with, I guess, correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess it's when you recognize something as abnormal, if you yourself can do it. And if you can't do it, you don't see that it's abnormal if it doesn't happen. Exactly. I mean, you could think of it as a form of embodied cognition that, the you know, the way your body works informs the assumptions you make about causal cognition, about how things work. I, I love this. Obviously, I think this is absolutely fascinating. It's a lot of fun and it's very, very interesting. But tell me, Nikki, why does it matter? Well, it matters because of the assumptions we make about how we see the world. You know, we tend to think that we're all-consuming and extremely intelligent creatures and we don't make mistakes. I'd hate to get political on you, but I think a various suite of events that's happened over the past couple of years have made us realise that there are all kinds of cognitive constraints, blind spots in our ability to see, roadblocks in our ability to, to think. What's interesting is why and how these have evolved and to what extent do we share some of these abilities with other animals and why? You know, is there a biological basis to this or is it entirely cultural? We wouldn't be talking about this if we thought it was entirely cultural and there was no biological basis. But these comparisons between all these different species and these different approaches to cognition, welfare and sentience are crucial, you know, out of respect for the other animals with whom we share the planet. Thank you. Excellent. Does anyone have any questions to pose Nikki or any observations to make on her work? Yes, Jonathan. So Nikki, how do you think the birds were solving the water level task? Was was it spontaneous insight or was it trial and error over many attempts? Well, it certainly wasn't trial and error over many attempts because they learned it pretty quickly. Whether it's just that eureka aha moment or whether they're very sensitive to the idea that when you put, plop a heavy stone into water, the water level goes up and the worm comes closer is another matter. And in fact, we did a series of experiments to try to tease these things apart. And the short answer to the question is it looks like it's a mixture of the two. There are some things that appear to they spontaneously get but there certainly is a level of learning involved, but rapid learning. Nikki, did they learn from each other? We didn't give them that opportunity, so I don't know. That would have been interesting whether they could acquire, you know, knowledge, if that's a word, it works from each other, whether they teach each other observationally. Certainly there's been some beautiful um, work done at the University of Birmingham by Sarah Beck with children, and the children aren't very good at learning individually, but if they can watch another learn, they solve it really quickly. Mm. So it certainly applies to children. Yeah, it'd be interesting if there was, there was some parallels. Any other observations or comments? Yes, Thomas, please. 
Um, uh, Nikki, it's very interesting uh, about these. Yeah, it, they're so, it seems so intelligent, the corvids. But I'm wondering if you have any experience or opinions on poultry species, because yeah, I'm interested in uh, animal production. I'm wondering, because over many years now, we have bred our, our poultry in a certain direction to improve our efficiency of production. And now we have a very fast growing bird, but at the expense of other uh, yeah, welfare yeah, issues. For instance, they, they're not so strong on their legs anymore, but has it affected their intelligence, I wonder? Have you any opinions on the effect of breeding on an animal's intelligence? Gosh, what an interesting question. I don't know. I know there's been quite a lot of work done on um, cognition in chicks, in chickens, and particularly the work of Giorgio Velotigara, for example. But I've no idea about effects of breeding. But you would imagine that it would have some kind of yeah. implication. I mean, I, I'm a dancer as well as a scientist and so I'm certainly very well aware of how important for me it is to know how to move my arms and how to move my legs and you know you can't you can't learn how to do a jeté or a rond de jambe just by watching someone else you you have to do it and then either have someone correct you or watch yourself yeah. and you get people that there are people that are very good at observational learning, so they're very good at seeing how they move in a mirror and correcting themselves. I'm rubbish. I'm a kinesthetic learner. So for me, you have to put me in position and let me feel it. And once I've felt it, I know how to do it. So, you know, if you raised me as one of those chickens that then had really wobbly legs, I'd be a rubbish dancer. Yeah, but it's a very good point because, you know, there's a movement nowadays of uh, growing chickens that are slow growing. And in effect, we go back to the genetics of yeah. 30 years ago. But it's a, there's a remarkable difference when you go into a poultry house uh, with, uh, where, these are, where these slow growing birds are, um, they are so engaging with the person that comes in. Uh, they're engaging with each other. You see that they're spar, they're fighting with each other. They're running and jumping. They're exploring the enrichment. There's a total opposite scenario when you go into the, the house of fast-growing birds. It's like, okay, they have decided not to do any of this anymore because it's too much effort and forget about it. And probably they won't explore or maybe they they have, yeah, their, their interest has, has dwindled as a result of this focus on, on just laying down tissue. Right? Yeah, it's, That's fascinating, Thomas. Jonathan, what do you want to add? Well, I'm re reflecting now on this story from Thomas. I mean, that, that's what good welfare looks like, isn't it? The first case you were describing, when you go in and you see the animals expressing their cognitive abilities, that's what good welfare looks like, and the other, the other scenario isn't. I would really love to see more work generally on the cognition of chickens, because they don't have the reputation corvids have. Corvids have this reputation for being so incredibly clever but it's not that people have systematically studied the intelligence of chickens and found good reasons for thinking they're less intelligent than corvids it's rather that the whole topic has been neglected so i'd love to see people doing experiments like nikki's on the memory abilities and planning abilities social cognition 
and seeing whether chickens can do them as well. And I think there's a decent chance chickens would have a lot of these same abilities. I think it's really interesting, isn't it? And there's an important point to be made here that absence of evidence is not evidence of absence, right? That's a very good point. And neither is it an excuse for cutting corners. Well, I'm going to wind this down now. And I want to thank you sincerely for a fascinating episode. I'm very, very grateful to all of you for having found the time. I know you're all very busy people. Um, This program leaves us with a lot to consider uh, about how we interact with the creatures around us and, and whether we're taking certain things for granted or perhaps preferring just not to look at all. So thank you very much indeed for that. Thank you very much, Abigail. Bye-bye. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Abigail. My great pleasure. My great pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Are you interested in what other EU-funded projects are doing in the area of animal sentience, non-linguistic expressions of intelligence and animal welfare? The Cordis website will give you an insight into the results of projects funded by the Horizon 2020 programme that are working in this area. The website has articles and interviews that explore the results of research being conducted in a very broad range of domains and subjects. From platypuses to Plato, there's something there for you. Maybe you're involved in a project or would like to apply for funding. Take a look at what others are doing in your domain. So come and check out the research that's revealing what makes our world tick. We're always happy to hear from you. Drop us a line, editorial at cordis.europa.eu. Until next time. <laughs>